remember my fingertips brushing the surface of the water. And as soon as that happened, a large tiger shark came up from underneath me, grabbed onto my legs, started ragdolling me back and forth. And I knew I was getting attacked because it was like very visual and I could see everything happening. Um, and, and I just felt this immense pressure, like zero pain, like it's crazy, like no pain whatsoever. It felt like maybe like 20 Hawaiian guys were all sitting on my leg at once, like literally just felt like that. He described the moment a tiger shark bit down on his leg to me as a feeling of pressure, like 20 Hawaiians were sitting on him. He was only 18 at the time, catching waves with friends off Kauai in Hawaii. He proceeded to tell me the horrific details of being taken to hospital at 100 miles an hour in the back of an open bed truck. You'd think this would be enough to turn any surfer off sharks, but the opposite was true with Mike. I met Mike because he's an advocate for sharks, fighting for their survival and acceptance as important animals in our ocean communities. In 2010, Mike worked to pass legislation making it illegal to possess shark fins in Hawaii, the first law of its kind in the US. After his attack, he pursued other avenues of involvement in the oceans during his recovery. He ascended to top ranks of surf photography. But to me, his images of sharks are the most amazing. Mike strongly represents this beacon of forgiveness and acceptance through unreal images of his new fake leg and one remaining leg in frame with the very species responsible for his attack. I met Mike when living in Hawaii, and his attack story for me wasn't just an amazing foundation for his conservation work and a story of recovery to look up to, but it was also a trigger for an investigation I would continue for years later and to this day am researching, and that is the potential link between human agriculture and an increased presence of sharks. So could Mike's attack have been the result of human negligence? Is he scared face-to-face with an animal that once nearly took his life? And what is his hope for the future of sharks? What do surfers need to learn from this attack? And how can we all learn from Mike the power to overcome anything and take any enemy and turn them into a friend? The myth, the man, the legend, Mike Coots, good morning. Aloha, Pip. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Mike, you are on the other side of the ocean to me right now. It's really cool to talk to you again. Um, I haven't seen you in person in ages, but the last time I did, I got to hear all about your experience with sharks, and I want to jump straight into things and have you tell the story you've told a hundred times and describe for me that moment that your life changed forever. Yeah, um, I was 18 at the time. I live on the island of Kauai, and the shark attack happened here at home. Uh, we have a military base called PMRF. It's a Navy base, and it happens. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's in America, like some of the best surf spots are on military bases for some odd reason. But um, sure enough, there was like a really fun wave that was on this base, and we had a, like a really bad um, summer, like zero swells coming in. And I was on a bodyboarding team, I was an avid bodyboarder, and there was about eight of us or so on the team. We had a coach, uh, Bob Sato, and we saw the swell coming, and this was, I was 18 at the time, and um, this would have been late October, uh, right before Halloween, and, and we just about a week out saw this amazing swell. I think it was like an eight-foot northwest, um, just months and months of no surf. Like, this looked like, I don't know, we just were frothing. And that morning came, we, we all woke up early as a team, we loaded up the car, um, 
my coach had this four by four old scout vehicle that uh, you could drive on the sand. And, and uh, at the time we were able to like pull right up on the beach to the surf spot. And we got there at about seven 30 or so. And I remember the, the scouts doors opening up and we smelled like the most stinkiest, disgusting, fishy smell ever. Like I've never smelled that till today. And, uh, and I should have taken it as a, like a cue, not, you know, as, as not to paddle out, but the waves are freaking going off and we were out there and, I jumped in with my friends and I remember the kind of the sun coming up and um, the waves being really good. And it's a reef break that goes in the sand and it's in about 30 feet of water or so. And my friends had all got really good rides like right off the bat. Um, like I think it was like a, a, a 10 wave set or so. And it seemed like they all, you know, the first nine waves they caught. And the last I knew was the last wave of the set and it was myself and this other surfer out the back, someone I had seen before. And, um, I started paddling for the wave and I kind of want to signal that this is my wave. So I kind of made this, I'd been sitting there for probably 10 minutes since I paddled out motions. Um, this vertical on my board, the boards between my legs um, and, and nothing amiss. There was no anything really at all. Like I didn't, I didn't feel any vibe or anything that uh, my life was about to change. And it was really when I started paddling for that wave. And I, I remember my fingertips brushing the surface of the water. And as soon as that happened, a large tiger shark came up from underneath me, grabbed onto my legs, started ragdolling me back and forth. And I knew I was getting attacked because it was like very visual and I could see everything happening. Um, and, and I just felt this immense pressure, like zero pain. Like it's crazy, like no pain whatsoever. It felt like maybe like 20 Hawaiian guys were all sitting on my leg at once, like literally just felt like that. And um, yeah, and, and it started swaying me back and forth um, with his nose out of the water. And I remember just going like kind of the swaying motion as soon as it stopped, his jaws started articulating again. I'm trying to get a better, I think, grip of my legs. And I punched it a couple times with my left hand right in the nose and it let go. And it basically just sunk back right back underneath the, the water line. And I, I got back on my board. I looked to the guy that was next to me, the surfer, and, and he was completely white. His face, his eyes were popping out of his head. And, and I didn't know what to say. I was like, sure, go in. And he basically just beelined to the beach. Cause, I mean, he must've been like three feet away when I got attacked, like really close. We were almost not shoulder to shoulder paddling for the wave, but pretty close. Um, and, and he didn't say a word. He, he took off the shore. And as, I, as I'm like about to make my first paddle, I remember looking at my index finger and it was split open like a potato. There's blood everywhere. I could see my bone through my finger and it was just super gross. And I, I was like, oh boy, I'm hurt. Because so I, I guess I had subconsciously tried to stick my hand in its mouth to get my legs out. And, and that obviously didn't work. I think it was when I punched it in the nose. That's when, when the shark let go of me. And, and I... I caught a little wave right up to the beach and, um, and I, and actually I'll lay back up a second. So before I caught that wave, I was, I like felt this weird spasm, um, in my limb that I felt all that pressure on. And I thought like, okay, it's the shark finishing me off. And I looked over my shoulder and it wasn't that it was my legs severed off completely, like just severed off. But then everything was like happening like super fast. And this little wave came and I caught it right up to the beach and I tried standing up without a, a foot like you're just used to your whole life standing on two feet and without a foot um i couldn't stand and i just rolled back over sort of down the sand burn back into the water and kind of crawled my way back up and then my, my friends all that were on the inside that had caught those waves earlier they ran up to my aid um especially my friend kyle he, he took my leash and made a tourniquet um which i later found out saved my life and he said they're saying a prayer for me right there on the beach and, and i remember like not being scared that i was going to die or anything but just like this real warm comforting feeling over me and opened my eyes and there was a pickup truck there um this guy keith Karasik saw what was happening and, and threw his truck in four by and, and got right to where the um accident was and they threw me in the bed of the truck and we basically hauled ass to the er and um i was in the er at a little er for a couple hours i'm um, doing 
like some surgery things and they transported me to the big hospital and woke up pretty much the next day and was at the hospital for like a week or so and then bedridden for about a month after that and um, slowly just got used to being an amputee and life with a prosthetic leg. Okay, so I have 600 questions, but I have two main questions. Yeah. So initially you didn't even realize that your whole leg was gone. No, um, I didn't, I didn't even feel it come off. I didn't see it come off. I just, yeah, like I said, I just felt like crazy amounts of pressure. Like imagine looking down and just being like, it's gone. I mean, I, I guess if, if I was like a good painter or something, I could probably paint a gruesome visual of what I saw when I looked over my shoulder. Like it, my, there was blood squirting out every time my heart, I just remember that very visually, like this huge squirts of blood right from the middle of my leg or <laughs> yeah wow. just i mean talking about like like it was like out of hollywood like my guess like 10 foot squirts like crazy squirts of blood wow yeah. yeah um that's amazing and then the other question is did you know that it was a tiger shark when you were getting attacked yes yes um and, and the really the only reason i know that is because i remember it being because i was looking down at it is as legs were in my mouth and i remember it being very very square like the nose being as square as can be and then as as i was in this lucid state it, KVMH, the, the smaller hospital, because I went to the big one, and I was laying there kind of in this daze, and I, I there was this um, overhead light system, like a light fixture that was really square, and, and they were talking to me about the shark, how big it was, and what kind, and I was like, I just remember the nose being as square as that angle on the, the light fixture, and that was like a 45-degree angle. Um, I think that's 45 or 90. But yeah, that real square angle. Um, and, yeah, it was obvious it was a tiger shark. I'm very confident it was a tiger shark. Yeah, they had the just even distinctive the way that I remember my hands, like, Yes, in my hands, I remember being on each corner of the nose and I was trying to push my legs away, almost like like a desk, like trying to push a desk, like a chair away from a desk. I mean, that's a really intimate involvement with that shark when you are so hands-on because your body's literally inside its yeah. mouth. Like, that's yeah. crazy. And, um, and I remember the feeling, like, I, I don't remember any, like, sounds or any smells besides that smell before we paddled out, but I... I um. I kind of just do remember like this feeling coming over my body. Like we have centipedes here in Hawaii. And it's really the only thing, I guess, besides anything in the ocean that can kind of harm you. And when you see a centipede, like your first instinct, like the hair stand up on your skin. And I remember that exact feeling being when I got attacked, like a fight or flight. This is creepy. Get away from me. Kind of feeling. Wow. Yeah. And then afterwards, those moments that you were sitting in the hospital bed recovering, did you ever think in that time that one day you'd be so heavily involved in sharks? Oh, heck no. No, not at all. I was just, I was just all, I, all I wanted to, sorry, my, my earphone just popped out. Um, all I really wanted to do was how fast I can get back in the barrel. That's all I, to be honest. <laughs> You're such a surfer. That's dope. <laughs> yeah, that was really all I cared about. Oh my goodness. Okay. I mean, it sounds also like the community played a large role in your survival, which I really love. I think that that's something surfers need in the water is to be looking out for each other. And I want to ask you, because it's something that I push a lot amongst the surf community after that attack, how important is a first aid kit or something like a tourniquet being taken with you when you're going to surf? Oh, absolutely. Like, like for me, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a tourniquet. And even though it was a makeshift tourniquet that was on my surfboard to be able to have. And the thing is, is like, I'm a real firm believer in like having things so that you don't need them. Like bring a first yeah. aid kit to the beach so you don't need it. Or, you know, bring a whatever it is so you don't need it. Bring flares on your boat so you don't need it. Yeah, it's by going through the action of bringing something and preparing for something to happen that it's much less likely that you're going to need that. I, I truly believe that. And, and I think it really holds true for anything on the ocean. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And when you do, and if you do need it, then it saves somebody's life. It's like a win-win on both sides. I, I think everybody going anywhere near people surfing, especially in isolated areas, need to have that because no matter how hard we try to protect ourselves, I mean, that is the difference between life and death if the accident does happen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you have any advice for people that have been attacked or witnessed an attack that might be a little bit scared of sharks or getting back in the water? Oh, man, that's a hard one because I think everybody processes trauma differently and there's probably not one, you know, one solution for a, a yeah. And, um, yeah, that's a tough one. And I, I think it depends on how heavily it affects somebody. And I mean, it can be every from going to, you know, talking to a counselor and being able to talk about stuff um, to people you trust to maybe like, I've had, a, like I've had some things in my life that were more traumatic in the ocean, almost than the shark attack. And by doing like certain things that really helped me get over it and, and maybe somebody could find what that is, whether it's getting right back in the water and, trying to catch a wave or diving with a shark or just everybody's got their own different personal life experiences of what happened. But I, I do believe there's, there's always a solution instead of just pushing yourself away from the sea. There is always as well, like two kind of different types, well, many different types of shark attack survivors, but I see people that like yourself that embrace it and they end up working with sharks and and just being an amazing example. And then what we don't see enough of is the other side of people whose lives are kind of ruined and it haunts them forever and they don't take on this new identity. And I think we don't, we don't always see that in the media. You know, none of those people on sh- are on Shark Week. So I always try and consider those people when talking about this kind of stuff. So it's like a reality. Yeah, I got a reality check. Like it sort of been maybe like seven years ago, but there was a a fatal shark attack in, in Australia and um, CNN had asked me to write an opinion editorial piece about sharks and why we need them and this and that. And I wrote, you know, I spent maybe half a day writing this piece. And then I went, this was during Facebook times. And I went to the wife of the guy that, that had passed away and I read her stuff and her grief. And I just, it, I don't know. I just felt so weird and I rewrote everything. And, and I just, it's, you know, it's, it's like you can look through optics of one thing, and I'm fortunate that I haven't had flashbacks or anything in my shark attack, and it's been very beneficial. But to other people or other people's family members or somebody that's passed away, it's a little different, and you've got to really be sensitive to that because, like, you know, it's this is traumatic stuff, and and this is people's lives that are being lost or limbs being taken, and you need to be cognizant of those emotions. Yeah, it's amazing, and that's something that took me a while to learn too, but definitely something to keep in mind. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about something that you and I have spoken out about before that I haven't been too vocal about yet because I'm still looking into it. But the one thing that stuck with me about your story was that fishy smell that you initially mentioned and the fact that you remembered that. And then what we found out when we spoke about this, what I found out from you was the nearby agriculture that was occurring that could have been responsible for not only that smell, but the presence of that tiger shark. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So, so that morning, that smell was like, have, I've ne- like you, if you walked into, let's say, a fish market and the electricity was out for weeks and you walked in there and you opened up the freezer doors, that's what it smelled like, but probably even more pungent. Um, and it was, and it, I just distinctly remember that smell. And um, a few years later, I was kind of trying to find out why I got attacked, and, and you know, could I had done or the tides and this and that. I kept coming back to that smell, and there was a shrimp farm, but 
the shrimp farm was pretty far down a ways from where the attack site was and maybe like three miles away um and i just like okay well it's a little too far from where i got attacked to be the shrimp farm and then google earth was coming out and i went on google earth one day just curious and i looked and i saw that their ditch system connected from the shrimp farm to the river mouth nearby where i got attacked um, i was really close to this river mouth and that's where the affluent or uh, so the waste from the shrimp farm um, got discharged and and I, had, I sent a message to somebody and i was just curious and i'm like do you think you know is there any plausibility of this being connected and he was like no because the shrimp farm didn't start until 1998 and my attack was in 97 or maybe it was 1999, but it was it was a year or plus after my attack. And I was like, okay, well then I can't do this shrimp farm um, at all. And, and time had gone by, and then a couple years back, there was a story in our local newspaper about that somebody being on the beach of that exact same area where got attacked and smelling the same. And the way he described it in the news article, it was like identical that smell. And I was like, oh. And I did another I did another Google search, and sure enough. Um, the, the name of the shrimp farm had changed owners, but there was an EIS, an environmental impact statement, um, that the shrimp farm had to get approved or, or to go into business. And they had to do a testing of the fluent system prior to getting permits or to be able to operate as a business. And this was there, it was like a three month window for them to test out these affluent systems in their drainage ditches. And my shark attack was smack dab in the middle of that EIS. Um, so that kind of just makes me think that maybe there's some sort of correlation between what's going, you know, what, what that sh- was going on with the shrimp farm and my attack and, and that fishy smell. Um, but it's one of those, I mean, it's, I, I should have just taken, I guess, as a cue to not paddle out that day. I mean, in high, we, in you hindsight, know that, but then, but then, yeah. You yeah. know that now, but a lot of like, that's not something we learn at school we like in australia for example we have people come talk to us about tides and rips and currents and sun safety but nobody teaches us if there's bait balls dusk or dawn if there's a strong smell don't go swimming like that's the information that people need to know so maybe if you knew that back then things would have been different although it sounds to me like you were that kind of surfer that would have gone in anyway like most surfers yeah and to, and to be honest even like I, I could pull up to the beach tomorrow if the waves are going off and it smells fishy i would still probably paddle out like the idiot i am <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean it's but that is fascinating that is honestly just yeah it blows my mind and the fact that the two weren't linked and you had to go digging for that information when to me it just sounds like such a obvious thing and then i looked into that farm as well and the amount of effluent that they were capable of dumping within a year was just insane. Like there's, there's so much potential for negative shark interactions to occur at the hands of this kind of agriculture happening right where people are surfing. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure that stuff's happening like all over the world. Yeah. Um, some similar areas where people are surfing, they don't even realize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So my now after this like incident you got really into your photography and you take some unreal images of all sorts of things but of course my favorite are your shark images and out of those shark images is just one of your remaining leg your new fake leg and a tiger shark in the shot which is just so (laughs) unreal explain that moment to me uh yeah that's um i don't know just sitting on the seafloor and and watching sharks go by. Um, so is there any yeah. part of you that's, that's scared? Like, obviously, our, our bodies remember trauma. 
when the shark moves rapidly, when the shark's coming at you, was there any part of you that saw that tiger shark's head underwater and just kind of had flashbacks or anything? Um, no, to be honest, no, not, nothing at all like that. But I, I've had a couple, like one time I was, I used to be in the spear fishing when I was younger and I had a shark come up to me. Um, and, and that kind of freaked me out a little bit and even surfing if there's a splash every once in a while, but I most all in all, like, no, not at all. Um, and especially diving with sharks, or if you're like anticipating to see a shark, it's so much different than a shark blindsiding you. They're like two yeah. totally different things. Yeah. Why do you love sharks? Great question. Um, I love sharks because I just think they're one of the last wild, like crazy, beautiful things left on earth. Um, I think we are, I don't know, like at least in America, everything is so homogenized. There's Starbucks, there's this, there's that. And it's like sharks, you're, you're looking to like a bit of the past. You're looking to an era when like dinosaurs roamed the earth and it was like prey and predator and, and it's still wild. And I, and I think, you know, when if you're, let's say you remove sharks from the sea, like it's not going to have that wild appeal. Like people are going to do like dumb things and try to, I don't know, just frolicking like where they, I don't know. It's, I think it's just, it holds the oceans in check. It holds everything accountable. It's like this glue that binds everything together and makes the ocean wild. And without them, um, I, I, our oceans wouldn't be oceans. I, I think that's to me like the number one thing that draws me to sharks is just that wildness. But as a photographer, photographing sharks, it's a bit different because it's it's challenging. It's like really fun. Um, it's visually beautiful. It's unexpected, and it's I think it's just the challenge. It's it's like the most difficult subject you could photograph, like, at least in my eyes. And I I I like that as as a photographer to be challenged like that. I love that definition and i think that is a large part of the reason i love them too is because they humble you and we don't experience that as humans enough these days we just are in control of everything and we need an animal to put us in our place and sharks do that right right yeah yeah like where's yeah. the fun in it if it's not a little bit dangerous <laughs> right yeah um, that's very true yeah is there a species of shark that you want to photograph but you never have yeah, somebody actually asked me that on social media today. Um, it would, it would probably be a mako shark. Um, oh, yeah? I think they're, I mean, they're absolutely beautiful and they're, yeah, very gorgeous. Um, white oceanic white tip. I've, I haven't photographed one of those. That would be amazing. But I think a mako. Um, I really like, and and it's funny because I I used to live in this little town Tairu in New Zealand on the Coromandel Peninsula, and I guess like offshore, uh, there's a couple islands and, and out there it's like there's an amazing amount of mako sharks. And I didn't realize like when I was living there as a kid that basically in my backyard, it's one of the coolest places in the world to see makos. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. an amazing shark. I've only yeah. seen, yeah. have you seen them? I've seen one mako shark, like a small one in the water that was hooked on a long line, but we unhooked it and it swam off. So it was a very fleeting interaction. And to this day, the only one I've had, but even the way that it swam off, because they are the fastest sharks in the sea, as you know, and even the way it swam off had this like Ferrari style <laughs> speed to it. And it was just like <laughs> right. immediately like presented itself as its reputation, like of being the fastest. It was just so amazing to watch that animal move through the water. So you'd need a pretty fast shutter to get it. But I think that that would be amazing. And this, this thing, so this thing they do, like we know that tiger sharks bite water. We know that the reef sharks bend their backs and put their fins straight down. So the mako shark's way of kind of asserting its dominance and standing ground is to open its mouth and kind of shudder its teeth. 
and I have this friend that's basically completely fearless and he once got images of them doing that in front of his camera. So he essentially has this photograph of this Mako shark opening its jaw right in front of his camera and it's just some of the, the sickest photos that I've ever seen. And I, if you can stand your ground, what? like, that would be an unreal yeah. photo. What's the all-white shark you haven't seen yet, Pip, that you want to see? I am a little bit obsessed with basky sharks. Okay. Um, I think they're really, really cute, and they don't get enough attention, and they've just got really cute little faces. But I'm also scared of cold water, so I don't know if I'll ever get yeah. close to them anytime soon. <laughs> I'd just be happy to see a shark these days. It's not dead. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hopefully soon. Um, do you, when you're photographing sharks in the water with them, do you see signs of personality in them? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, it's, and it's really not until you're a couple days, I guess, in um, with the same sharks that you start to see that. And, it, and I wish I spent more time to like really understand that. But um, from what I've seen, definitely. It seems like just... Some characters, I mean, they're almost equatable to like humans or, you know, domestic pets, like, and not in the sense that sharks are domesticated, but just you see sort of the same traits, some of the same traits, whether it's the alpha or like the, you know, the one that's just curious or this or that, or, you know, yeah. And I I think maybe that holds true to everything in the animal kingdom. But yeah, I think they do have personalities. I I know they do. Yeah. So like, how was, how was surfing again for you with your new your new leg. Um, <laughs> how is doing, how is getting back into that? Yeah. Well, um, little backstory. So when I got attacked, I was a bodyboarder, like a diehard bodyboarder. I actually didn't like surfers and never you were a thought. Boto dragger. Yep. And I never <laughs> thought, um, I would ever sign up surf. I was like, why would I do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, um, I went to art school in Santa Barbara and there's this uh, spot called Ledbetter beach. And, and this, this would have been about maybe 10, 12 years after the attack. And I was, I had really crummy health insurance. Actually didn't have health insurance at that time. And I was kind of getting hooked up by um, the local prosthetic company here in Hawaii. And they were like, absolutely do not take your leg in the water. It's going to avoid our warranty. It's going to break. Just don't do it. Don't do it. And I was told not to do it. I, I did it for a long time. And that, that day in Santa Barbara was like a hot day. And we class was out and my friend had a big longboard and the waves were like these little tiny right hand this little beautiful little point break called Medbetter and I paddle out on the board and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take this prosthetic in the water and just F it, see how it goes. And um, it actually went really well. I, I was able to stand up first wave right all the way to the beach and I was like, freaking, this is awesome. Um, and I just from then on was hooked. Uh, I, I started kind of really trying to tinker with what worked, what doesn't. I'm fortunate, like on a prosthetic foot, you can take an Allen wrench and you can angle your toe in or your toe out or up and down like the, I can't like kind of on a like snowboard binding and, and I would start doing that like opening up my toes if I was going backside or narrowing my stance um and it was really cool to be able to do that and then I started realizing well I could buy feet on eBay and I started buying used feet on eBay and, and I have a friend Kepa Cruz who's like a really innovative kind of guy and he'd come over to my house in the evenings with like a hot knife and we would cut the feet and try to make like basically like Kelly Slater foot <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could, by having the right foot, I could be like Kelly Slater, and I sure soon found out that wasn't the case. And um, the foot that I was using, and all these feet that I was buying um, used online, they were made out of like this rubber ball joint, and it just sucked for surfing. And um, I got my first carbon fiber foot, um, and it like changed my surfing forever. Like carbon fiber is a godsend; it's the most amazing material. 
Um, and I started surfing on this foot called a ProFlex. And it's like, it's, it's really cool because like, well, like rubber, you, it's a dampener and you lose all that energy, but carbon, it holds it. And then it's able to turn the rail of the surfboard when you want to release that energy. And from there, everything else sort of happens, your speed, your flow, your maneuvers. And it was like, I got the Kelly Slater foot. <laughs> that is that is really amazing. I just I just love this mental image of of you just like cutting up designing your own yeah. foot in a garage. So sketch. <laughs> like we'll try this angle. Is it a short foot? Is it a bigger foot? Is it you know? And getting used feet, I get like a size fourteen. I get a size six. A times <laughs> I got the wrong the wrong foot when I like really needed a foot. And like for a couple of days, I'm just walking around on a backwards foot. Oh <laughs> man, it was pretty bad. And, adapt and overcome to have the best of the best yeah and that was like some interesting times yeah <laughs> i love that and you still go out and do everything in the ocean it's just so great um where you live in hawaii and hawaii in general i've always had such love and respect for the way that the locals and the culture looks at sharks um tell me a little bit about your experience with that obviously in comparison to australia it's very respectful yeah um the people of Hawaii are really connected, I think, with the oceans, or not, I think they, they are connected with the oceans. And um, Hawaiians believe in, in Amakua as like a family god. And, and to a lot of families, the, the shark or the mono is their basically their Hawaiian family member in a different form. And because of that, people aren't harassing sharks here. People aren't trying to go out and catch sharks. Um, people aren't eating sharks. It's just people let sharks be sharks. So after your attack, nobody went to try and like kill the shark or do anything like that. You know, I, I think somebody might have, and and I even some a couple other attacks, but it wasn't a planned. It was just more of a spur of the moment, and this also was like, this was in the late '90s, and I and I think the mindset of like bigger sharks trying to like remove them because of an attack, I, it wasn't really the science wasn't really there, but. All in all, like, and it would not have been Hawaiian families doing that at all. It, it, yeah. Um, but, and it, but it's really cool to see, like, people just loving sharks here in Hawaii. Um, yeah. And and if fishermen's, like, actually, you know, as a bycatch, they're, they're not, they're trying to get rid of that shark as humanely as possible, as fast as possible back in the ocean. Um, so I see that you've been involved in, like, science and legislation changing for sharks. and in particular, um, using your photography to assist with identification. Talk me through that, because that's really amazing. The commercial fishing industry basically just, I mean, they're, at least in America, they're very powerful. They, they, it's, it's, a, it's a huge industry. They have a lot of money. They've got the really powerful lobby groups, and it's, all, it's long line. And, um, and then we've also got, like, poachers that try to come in. We had a really big, like, shark finning bust recently. and. Um, it's fishing rules everything in, in, it's our number one exporter of any type for at least Hawaii of any type of like consider I think an agriculture product, but any type of agriculture product into the fisheries is number one. And a lot of it goes to tunables and things like that. Um, but I'm a firm believer that these things are going to continue to go, like keep going the way they are, the status quo, unless you create science and data, um, with, without that, policymakers, their hands are tied because it's just, it's big money um, and, and you need data. And there's a lot of different ways of getting data. And um, like traditionally, you can catch a shark and tag it and, and you get 
whether it's an acoustic tag or a satellite tag, and you get certain amounts of information from those different, you know, and those are all different tools in the toolbox to create this, these data sets and these baselines to be able to give it to policymakers um, when it comes time to, you know, when, when stocks of, of different types of sharks are getting reduced. Um, but I, I think a really good tool in that toolbox would be the, would be photo identification. Um, sharks dorsal fins are like fingerprints. They're all unique in a way. Um, and by submitting to like an online database, and this is all really relatively new stuff and there's creating algorithms so that somebody doesn't have to like, like physically be behind a computer being able to idea a, a shark. It's just, it's automated. And whether it's citizen fishermen who have their cell phone and they accidentally catch oceanic white tip as they're bottom fishing and cut it off and release it and take a photo as they're doing so, um, this information all will help, I think, you know, get their shark stocks to where they need to be. And along with that, keeping like fishermen able to still fish. Um, I'm not like a real hater actually at all on fishermen. I mean, fishermen are just doing what fishermen do. Um, especially in Hawaii, it's like a, it's, it's what people do here, um, and 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 this is a little different than the longline industry. It's actually a lot different. But local small boat fishermen here, they're just they're taking a lot smaller quantities. They want zero, like literally zero bycatch, and sharks considered a bycatch. Um, and and I think almost like they should be competing a bit against the longline industry because the longline industry is taking like fish in a commercial industrial way basically from their livelihood and by them helping out scientists i think it could be a win-win situation I, th I think the long lane industry needs to change and i think some of these heavy industrial commercial fishing operations like you you go and get an ahi tuna bowl in hawaii and, and you know during a good season when the fish are up it's like three dollars a pound and i think it's just it's a I don't know. Something should not be three dollars a pound. That's a beautiful, strong. Like, I don't even know how to put this to words. I'm sorry for rambling, but I just no. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just it's the, the commercial fishing industry at the at the long line level. I, I don't think it's really that good for fish stocks. It's also interesting the concept of being able to identify individuals for their dorsal fins, and I think as we've seen in the past with Hope the Whale Shark and Cecile the Lion, when you have individuals that you can follow their story and understand them a bit more, that's pretty cool too. And one day that's going to hit the public in a way that it has with other animals and really make them care. Like, for example, we know that a certain shark that was tagged in the Galapagos ended up disappearing around a fishing fleet and people paid attention to it for that time. So the idea of following or knowing and recording this information is also really good for like the public involvement. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you're able to track a shark, you're able to put a name to it. Um, it just, it makes people want to follow and keep updated. And it's almost like, a, you know, it's like a family member they want to check into. I know people that like check apps or, that are tracking sharks and it's like it, sharks coming into their area and they're not wanting to not go to the beach. They're excited the sharks like offshore. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, we we, we kind of have it in Australia, but not not too many people use it, but we do have an app where you can put in your sightings and I think the only issue with it is that some Australians will see uh, like a reef shark and be like, that's a tiger shark and put it in the app. So it probably seems uh -huh. a lot more crazy than it is. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really cool way also for people to be reminded of what's offshore and what they're going surfing with. Mike, there's a quote here that I believe is yours. Um, let me know if it's not, but it's, if my life's taken, don't take theirs. Yeah. 
Um, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's you go surfing, you're entering the shark's world. It's like, why would you want to kill? It's like you're going to somebody's home and then you inadvertently get hurt or you pass away. I just, I, yeah, I don't believe in that mindset of an eye for an eye. I absolutely love this quote and this mentality. Um, what percentage of the surf community do you think would be on board with that in your experience? Um, I guess it, I, I can't really speak for anywhere else besides uh, Kauai, but for Kauai, I would say in like the top 90%. That's absolutely. Great. Like at least nine, nine out of 10 surfers. Yeah. And is there anywhere on Kauai for someone as kooky as me to surf like a wave storm? <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> no, wave storms are cool. Yeah. Come here and visit. We'll go surfing. They're so cool. <laughs> They're like the best board ever. You guys have wave storms in Australia? We don't, but I had a friend in Oahu bring one to Indonesia for me. So oh. I have, I'm probably the only surfer in Indonesia to own a wave storm, which I, I think personally is just like really cool. <laughs> it's super underrated fun. It's super fun. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if uh, the, the one more question that I want to ask you, the last question I want to ask you is what is your favorite species of shark? Um. My favorite species to dive with would probably be a tiger or a hammerhead to photograph with. Um, and I'm, I'm always in a cage when I photograph, but it'd be a great white just because they're the most challenging. I think they, their behavior is a little bit more erratic. They're much faster. Um, the autofocus system seems to harder time to track. It's just, it's more challenging, a great white. Um, and, and they just they photograph so amazingly well. And they, they really, you can see some personality um, as you photograph them. But to just dive with a shark, I would say a tiger. Um, tiger or hammerhead i just they're they're beautiful and i haven't been fortunate to dive with a lot of different species um or like see a lot of shark schooling uh, and i would love to be able to do that but from my experience it would be a tiger or hammerhead unless i'm photographing it and then a great white and your great white photos are just unreal like there's so much personality captured in those images that i just love um sweet is there anything else that you'd want to tell people listening or anything you want to ask me? Um, no, I just, I just want to thank, I guess you for not demonizing fishermen um, and fishermen, I guess you can like, and I'm sorry to talk about fishermen, but I, I think they're like shark fishermen are in three different camps. You've got like the people that go out and purposely try to catch sharks for sport. And that's a little different than people being hired by you know the bigger powers to go and, and catch sharks for shark and super whatnot it's like you almost can't hate the player hate the game um and, yeah. I, and I think that's very valuable to not deep because you could just there's just a lot of online commentary about people just demonizing shark fishermen and those guys really i mean they're coming from some of the poorest areas in the world doing anything they can to provide for their family and um and it's easy to kind of sit back and just point figures at those kind of people. Um, and I, and I think what you're doing, that's really cool because it's trying to create a different mindset or trying to find other solutions instead of just criticizing it. And I think that's huge. So yeah, thank you for that. Well, thank you. And of course, if someone like yourself can go through something like that, lose a leg and then regain your love for the ocean and the species that took your leg and turn that potential enemy into a friend, then that is all the inspiration needed for someone like me to do the same with fishermen. So thank you for being an inspiration to so many people and for proving that that's how we effectively create real change is by 
not holding on to that hatred and actually turning that fear into something else, which is essentially what I've done with the fishermen, what you've done with sharks, and what I hope more people begin to do with these unreal animals that unfortunately we're always going to have to share the water with. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pip, and thanks for taking the time to chat. Oh, no fun. worries. Thank you, Mike. Have I hope that there are some good waves in your near future. <laughs> I think there is. <laughs> thank you. Oh, 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 o